Hello, everyone. Um, today in this episode, uh, we have Michael Strevens. Um, and the way I found out about him was by uh, reading his book, uh, which oddly enough, I don't remember how I came across it. Like, I, I just have no idea. Sometimes I just find books by mistake. Um, but not, not by mistake, sorry, by, just by accident. And, and it was lovely. Like, it's, uh, for the topic, it was one of the best books uh, that, that I ever read. And so I reached out to Michael to see if he wants to have a conversation. And he was um, kind enough to come here. And so... I'm very excited, and the, the topics that he covers um, are very fascinating. So, hello, Michael, and, and thanks, thank you so much for, for coming. Hi, uh, great to be here. Fantastic. So, so maybe just give a brief introduction on, on who you are and what you do so that people have a better background of, it, of you. Well, I'm a, I'm a philosopher of science, um, which means that I think about the way that science works and all of its moving parts, um, and I've been interested in many different aspects of science over the years. Um, for example, uh, theories of complex systems, uh, the nature of statistical theories, uh, the social structure of science. Uh, but uh, until relatively recently, I never really wrote anything about, about the biggest questions about science, just the, the whole nature of science, what makes science something um, different and apparently much more successful than uh, the other forms of inquiry that preceded it. Uh, like philosophy. And here I'm really talking about modern science as developed during the scientific revolution in, in uh, Western Europe, which somehow seemed to come across some way of thinking about the way the world works, which uh, 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 took off uh, in a way that uh, what I uh, people call the old philosophy of nature never really seemed to do. And as a consequence of which we uh, now live in this dramatically transformed world where we're surrounded with amazing and sometimes dangerous technologies. So uh, this, this book is my attempt to, to understand really what it is that makes science so different and more powerful than, for example, uh, philosophy as a way of thinking about how the world works. That, that was perfect. And so a good place to begin is, is how, how is science um, actually born? For example, where do you consider uh, kind of the beginning of science? Because there's always kind of the debate. There's kind of a few different areas that you can kind of start with. One is kind of like the the scientific revolution as a consequence of the Enlightenment. Uh, but then you can kind of argue that that was kind of the application of kind of the general trend of thinking that came before it. And even in the Middle Ages, they were already kind of building up to it. And then there were also, there are also some people that kind of go all the way back to the Greeks because... Uh, something like science was there, at least starting with Aristotle. So, so from your perspective, uh, how do you conceptualize the beginning of science? Well, if science uh, means uh, kind of systematic, intelligent, creative, uh, uh, ambitious, determined, uh, meticulous attempt to uh, figure out uh, what's really making everything tick, what makes the universe work, then science, I think, has been around for uh, more or less as long as recorded history, you know, maybe not always written down. Uh, and certainly uh, a philosopher like Aristotle uh, or, say, the um, 
many of the Islamic thinkers of the Middle Ages or uh, Chinese thinkers are engaging in something that fits the description I just gave. They're they're um, they're doing a kind of science, uh, uh, trying to figure out the world. But often we use the term science in a narrower a narrower way. Maybe it's a little invidious. Maybe we should be more careful and say modern science uh, or something like that. We don't really have a, a good word for it. For this thing that sprang up during the scientific revolution as a result of which science began to look a lot less like my own my own discipline of philosophy where it, it seems like you're um well as the as the uh, 17th century writer francis bacon said it seems like uh, in some ways you're going round in circles forever there's this great cycle of different theories sometimes more realist theories sometimes more idealist theories all of these wonderful arguments but that there, there isn't the sense oh we've now figured out this stuff we've discovered this stuff this is the the bedrock the foundation on which we can build new knowledge we don't really have that so much in philosophy and in ancient science in ancient greek science or chinese science uh, for example um, there's much less of that sense uh, when the thinkers who came after Aristotle were kind of, re, for example, were rethinking everything. Now, however, even, even though the, there's a sense in which, say, um, Newton's theory of gravity is obsolete, it's been replaced by Einstein and um, the, um, the laws of motion by quantum mechanics, still all physicists recognize it as this concrete substantial achievement on which all of these other achievements are actually built. So science acquires this kind of cumulative feel, and it's the same across uh, across um, uh, many different areas. So in something like uh, biology, for example, especially after Darwin, uh, or in geology uh, uh, throughout the last 200 years, for example, you get the sense of people building on the knowledge they already have. That doesn't mean, of course, that sometimes ideas are not discovered to be to be completely on the wrong track but even often when they're on the wrong track like say the caloric fluid theory of heat where heat is thought of as a kind of a substance that flows into things the more of that substance you have the hotter you are even that theory resulted in the development of certain kind of mathematics which turned out to be uh, 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 and, and in fact a whole really the beginnings of the whole science of thermodynamics which turned out to be incredibly useful even as the fundamental conception of, of heat uh, changed. So it's this cumulative progressive nature, uh, uh, you know, with, with, I mean, sometimes it's one step back, but then two steps forward, this progressive nature, which I really think marks out modern science as special uh, and different. And that I, I wrote this book to try to understand what we should call it. I don't know. I guess maybe we should just call it modern science versus all the other sciences there ever been. But uh, uh, after a while, it, that can get a bit uh, clunky. And so we end up just talking about science as opposed to, I don't know, um, the philosophy of nature. Right. Yeah, uh, that was great. And, and I really like your emphasis on this accumulative um, aspect uh, of science, which which is really kind of what, what made it so powerful, uh, especially compared to you know, natural philosophy, like you just described. Um, and it's, it's actually a bit curious on how that came to be, uh, especially regarding on what, what made that accumulative knowledge so important and what allowed it to be. Um, and I'm actually pretty interesting about how 
different conditions, for example, uh, in terms of philosophy, in terms of what we now call philosophy of science, of thinking of how philosophy should be structured, uh, but also material conditions that allows that scientific um, progression to occur. And that's a topic that, that I find really interesting and we'll, um, I hope that we can cover later. But uh, I'd like to first try to get a, a basic foundation of uh, philosophy of science, which is, of course, your field. And kind of, I think the two major tall figures of philosophy of science that almost everyone knows if they are kind of related to the fields and if they don't they should because they should even if they're only concerned about science like even if you don't give a crap on philosophy i think they're pretty important thinkers and that's uh popper and kuhn uh, and i think that's that's a good place to start for us to then kind of get to the bulk of the arguments um, of your book so maybe give a brief introduction you know what, what was important about popper what was important about kuhn and how, how do they relate to each other Sure. Well, so they're both they, these these uh, two philosophers, uh, both thinking about this very question I just posed about what it is that makes science um, so effective, uh, and they give answers that, in one way, agree, and in another very obvious way, completely disagree. So let me start with the agreement, and then I'll go on to the disagreement. The agreement, and I, I think this is not always appreciated by, by people reading them. But the agreement is that um, in the end, scientific progress is made because often relatively small or esoteric facts just uh, kind of refuse to budge, refuse to give way and end up uh, toppling big, big theories, big ideas about the way the world works. So it's this emphasis uh, on, on having theories actually get all the facts right and get the facts precisely, exactly right, uh, that ultimately, although it can take a, a long time and be very circuitous, that ultimately is what shows us that certain kinds of big ideas, including even something like um, Newton's ideas about gravity, are not quite right. So the key to scientific progress is this, the, the, the immovable fact. But Popper and Kuhn had very different ideas about how the structure of science turned up these facts. Um, for Popper, the, science, uh, the scientist is um, very self-conscious about the importance of um, empirical refutation, the importance of, of the way in which the facts can bring down a theory. Uh, uh, so he thinks that scientists at all times, at least the good scientists, have this in mind. And um, what really marks out the good scientists and and drive science forward is a really fierce, critical attitude that's directed towards uncovering these facts and being completely unrelenting in, in bringing them to bear on theories, uh, you know, insisting that a theory uh, uh, explain everything. And sometimes it takes a long time to, to really settle these arguments, but still it's that ultimate insistence <laughs> that is, is crucial and the critical attitude of the scientist is what drives it. Kuhn's, Kuhn's picture of the scientist's mind is actually uh, almost the complete opposite of that. His scientists are uh, most of the time not thinking about uh, refutation, about how the facts will create problems for theories at all. Rather, they take the theory uh, to be the immovable thing. They regard the theory as the thing that, that is non-negotiable. Kuhn 
famously used this term paradigm to encompass um, the, a, theory, a scientific theory and all of the all of the auxiliary parts of a theory that that give you a kind of a complete recipe for doing science. So um, uh, that could include such things as a list of which problems are important, a list of the right ways to go about using the theory to solve those problems, statistical techniques, um, kinds of measuring apparatus. Even anyway, the whole the whole bundle is the paradigm. And and Kuhn says, uh, you know, rightly or wrongly, that the scientists take this bundle just to be given to them, almost like a kind of religious dogma, uh, they don't question the theory. What they need to do is fit the theory to the facts. And this is what they consider to be their their uh, sacred duty, if you like. Um, but when they fail to fit the theory to the facts, the, their first um, recourse is to blame themselves. They think, well, I must have done something wrong because the, the facts keep coming back at me, but the theory is non-negotiable. So obviously I've done my calculations wrong. I've used my measuring instruments wrong uh, or whatever. So you might think this is not a very a good way to set up an institution for um, <laughs> refuting theories to have a whole bunch of people who believe that the theories simply cannot be refuted. But here's, here's the real twist in, in, in Kuhn's idea, which is such an such a amazing and creative idea. He thought that the scientists, because they believed so fervently in the theories, really just went all out to match the theories to the facts. And in the end, if there was any discrepancy at all, they would find it um, in spite of themselves. So they would, they would by, by, by trying over and over again to fix their so-called mistakes uh, uh, and get the theory to match the facts, they end up exposing the theory's mistakes. And that's how the theories are brought down. Uh, so it's the, precisely the scientist's non-critical, almost credulous attitude to the theory that turns them into great theory refuters. But both Popper and science agree that it's this, it's this really intense power of science to, to, to throw out theories on the basis of small discrepancies that's, that's, that's crucial to scientific progress and that really characterizes modern science, makes it different from the other forms of science, the historical forms of science that we discussed. Awesome. That, that, that was great. And, uh, and yeah, that, that's kind of that that drive is is a great has greatly pointed out. It's it's a really core feature out of both of them, and it's it's kind of funny because like Popper and Kuhn, they're such important figures, but I think and they're almost they're, they're kind of standards in in kind of the canon of the subject. But I still think they're underrated somehow because they don't understand how revolutionary they are, especially with the context that they come from. Like I remember. Like I've been passionate about science for almost my adult life, and 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 I remember that I only discovered before I kind of got more seriously into philosophy that kind of this pillar of falsification that that started with Popper that's not even a hundred years old, and I was like, how is that even possible? Like, how, how did you even get here before that? Like, it's crazy, and and also the fact that. He, he cared more about theory surviving than, than having a correct theory. I think people don't understand how much of a bizarre claim that is. And with Kuhn, um, I also think he's underrated because, because I think people don't truly get what he meant by paradigm. He, like, in his book, he really describes this when, when he kind of had a shift towards uh, Aristotle, Aristotelian thinking, uh, that, that it's, 
it's this thing in your perception and in your entire cognition. Like it's not something outside of you. It's like it completely frames your thinking. And, and that's, well, that's, that's kind of almost the most important thing there is. It's like, how are you framing the world? And, and people, I think, often read these authors and they don't quite appreciate exactly you know how, how big they were and, and what what they were actually saying but a problem with these authors is that you know sometimes people people read them because they know they're important right so so they read popper's uh what's his book conjectures and refutations something like that um and then they read kuhn's book and something that happens when you read a book like that in isolation is that everything sounds more convincing than it actually is because you don't you don't see the kind of the the counter arguments right and so for example someone reads kuhn uh, like i did for example uh, uh when, when i first started reading about this stuff and you're like oh it's science all about you know paradigm shifts and whatnot and if you read popper like falsification is like basically 99 percent of science uh but it's not the case obviously like they, they put lots of great arguments and they contribute a lot to the field but that's not actually what philosophy of science is like at least uh, right, right now so maybe you can touch upon uh, what exactly was missing uh, with these thinkers and what what has been advancements in the in the field of philosophy of science so what do i where do i think popper and kuhn went wrong <laughs> Sure. Well, I think uh, I'll begin. I'll begin by not answering the question and, and saying what they got right. Um, I think. I think the thing that they agreed on is they were completely right about that. The key to modern science is its obsession with with uh, getting the minutiae right and and having the fates of big theories depend on complex, small-scale observations. I mean, it's not, a, it's not always um, a little measurement, something it's, sometimes it's something like, uh, as with Darwin and the theory of evolution, it's an appreciation for the details of the way that life is arranged in many different parts of the world. You know, it was really when Darwin went on his years-long um, sailing trip around the world, he began to appreciate um, all of the he was a very keen observer of the small scale um, structure of, of, of life. And that's really what, what ultimately built up to his big ideas about evolution. But anyway, that's, so that's the part I think they got right. But what in their diametrically opposed uh, stories about the way scientists actually think, they're both really rather extreme. And I think too extreme at, at opposite ends of a spectrum. On the one hand, Popper is, Popper's scientist is just too logical and rational and also fair uh, uh, and, and uh, impartial. So the Popperian scientist is just as concerned to refute their own theory, a theory they may have come up with themselves to really test it um, rigorously against the facts. Um, in real life, I don't think we find scientists don't have this kind of uh, uh, superhuman objectivity that that Popper thought was was key to making science work. On the other hand, Kuhn's picture is too negative in a way. I mean, his picture of a scientist is is certainly not very appealing in a, in a in a civilization that that values independence and clear sightedness. Here are these scientists who just can't let go of this idea, who are almost totally taken in by it. Uh, in fact, scientists are uh, a little bit more measured than that. Um, some of them really are keen on overthrowing the prevailing theory, just as Papa said. So a lot of them are just 
want to do their scientific work and they know the rules for doing the scientific work, but they're not, it's not as if they're going to stake their life on some theory or other. Um, they just accept it as sort of the, the current way things are done and they'll, they'll go along with that. Um, so Popper, Popper made his scientists too, too, uh, too credulous and, Sorry, Kuhn made his scientists too credulous. Uh, Popper made his scientists too critical. The truth is somewhere in the middle. Scientists are more like ordinary people. They're not just going to swallow some story completely without having uh, any second thoughts, but they're also not going to manage to consistently apply the, the kind of logical rigor that Popper demands to every theory, least of all their own favorite theory. So what we need if we're going to understand why it is that this that modern science came along relatively recently, that this, this, this ability to measure theories against the facts so, so relentlessly, so rigorously, uh, is, is, is this new thing, is we need a, a story about the, the social structure of science that, 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 that gives scientists a kind of a mindset that it isn't a mindset that people who are thinking about nature before modern science had, that's still not as extreme on one side or the other as Popper's and uh, Kuhn's stories. And how does the, the sociology of science uh, comes into philosophy of science? That, 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 that area has always been um, a bit blurry for me. Well, I think what sociologists did that was so incredibly valuable is think about, first of all, uh, think about the importance of social institutions in science. Uh, you know, this, this kind of thinking began in the 1930s, 40s, 50s with sociologists like Robert Merton. And I think Kuhn, uh, although he doesn't talk much about that stuff, took it on board and his, his story about the paradigms and so on is very much driven by a certain kind of social institution, whereas Popper's scientists can sometimes seem to be just uh, a, a, a company of heroes all kind of setting out <laughs> um, valiantly on their own. So that's important. But then later on, sociologists of science uh, rather than, uh, uh, turned their attention um, not so much uh, uh, towards institutions, the large-scale sociology of science, but towards the way that individual scientists were working, the way that individual uh, scientific labs worked. And so they were, in effect, they went in and compared what was going on in scientific labs with what uh, Popper and Kuhn were saying. And what they found... Uh, and I know that this did not surprise many, many scientists I know. What they found was something that was really very much in between those two extremes. On the one hand, you have the, um, you do have a lot of kind of conformity and going along with the system because it's the system. But on the other hand, you don't have so much a kind of religious devotion to the system, uh, let alone the belief that the system can't possibly fail. Uh, uh, You do have a kind of um, logical, critical faculty. You have various objective techniques for analyzing data and comparing data to theories, but you don't have uh, uh, a, um, a completely impartial or objective attitude to using these tools. In fact, often scientists use them in very partial ways. Uh, uh, I wouldn't say that scientists are any more self-serving than your average human being. And, you know, Uh, but, but they're also not on the whole any less self-serving. Uh, and they'll not necessarily 
um, deliberately manipulate the system, but they'll they'll the routes through the complexities of scientific analysis and research that uh, give their own theories a easier time of things will naturally look more appealing to them. So. So it's complicated. Um, what you find is that scientists are acting like real human beings, sometimes admirably, sometimes just normally, occasionally, shamefully. Um, the most of the time, they're neither particularly admirable nor um, uh, particular dastardly. They're just they're just doing their thing. And and sociology really brought out this side of of science and made it look like neither Papa nor Kuhn could really be correct. Both of them, in effect, made scientists these remarkable individuals, either remarkably critical and objective in Papa's case or remarkably docile and uh, 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 uncritical in Kuhn's case. And really, they're neither. They're kind of doing their best to use the system to get what they want, which you know, in some cases is real understanding of the world. In some cases is just to do their job well or to be successful, to climb the ladder. Um, what we need is a, is a story that recognizes that and shows how the institutions of science work to take people like that, which is to say ordinary people, and, and somehow turn them into uh, uh, engines of the kind of refutation that Popper and Kuhn so rightly saw as the as the most important thing about modern science. Mm-hmm. So, when looking about what Popper and Kuhn said, and kind of the criticism that that seems to be, um, you know, the most spoken against um, what they were trying to claim, is that they kind of made a theories of how they think science works without too much you know paying attention to what you just said of you know how scientists actually operate in the real world and i think i think popper was kind of this was more of a problem for copper than than kuhn in my opinion i think kuhn tried to pay more attention about how has this actually developed historically but nevertheless, you know, there's this common criticism about it. But the problem is that criticism to me uh, maybe not in a correct way, uh, seems not so much philosophy of science, but more so history of science and sociology of science. So is there something unique about philosophy of science that is unique to philosophy that has kind of uh, taken over uh, this, this thinking about, about science? Well, I do think that many philosophers are, have, have kind of taken in these historical and sociological studies. And so they are themselves thinking in these lights. Um, at the same time, uh, on, the, on the more purely philosophical side, as um, philosophers have tried to develop stories about the logic of evidential support, the way that evidence bears on theories, so a kind of calculus, if you like, that takes in the evidence and tells you how much the evidence supports one theory or undermines another theory. Um, as they've tried um, often in, 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 in quite formal, even mathematical ways to develop these theories, they've discovered, uh, and and the history and the sociology has certainly played an important auxiliary role here, um, but even, even formally, uh, they've discovered that, that context is critical, that background beliefs are critical, uh, and that uh, uh, in particular the kinds of background beliefs that, that – very uh, 
considerably between perfectly reasonable people are critical, which means that logically speaking, you'll, you should expect to find uh, quite considerable disagreement about the significance of the evidence. Uh, uh, and, and at least in the early, earlier stages of science when, when everything is still in ferment. So it can be something as simple as just uh, disagreeing on how likely it is that some measuring apparatus uh, was properly calibrated. You get a result from the measuring apparatus that looks very favorable for one theory and very unfavorable for another. And yet at the same time, there's something a bit funny about the results. You know, I, I talk at some length in my book about the case where uh, uh, of a telescope that gives images that are a little bit blurry in a way that suggests that something has not quite gone right um, with the experiment and yet still um, unblurry enough that the calculations can be made that favor one theory, as it happens, it was Newton's old theory of gravity and, and undermine another theory, Einstein's new theory of gravity. And the experimenters involved, um, led by the famous physicist Arthur Eddington, themselves concluded that uh, now they were, Eddington was very pro-Einstein. He really wanted Einstein's theory to be correct. And for, you know, not, not out of some kind of inner selfishness, but because he appreciated the mathematical beauty of the theory and also because he thought it would, he, this was right at the end of World War I, he thought that having a German physicist, you know, the physicist or German speaking, I should say, physicist who represented the, the, the defeated powers turn out to have this wonderful new idea would, would help bring about a new era of international cooperation and peace. So Eddington was very high-minded in this way, but nevertheless, he really wanted Einstein to be right. And so he dismissed the results of that telescope, probably correctly, actually, but, but, but without really knowing what, what had gone wrong, he dismissed them. Other scientists who uh, who were reading his, his, the fairly scrupulous, um, um, experimental reports from him and his team thought, well, that seems a bit rash to dismiss those results. Sure, something could have gone wrong that makes them invalid, but equally, maybe <laughs> maybe that despite being blurry, they're still giving us valuable information. How can we just throw them out altogether? Um, so I'm giving you, now I'm back giving you a kind of story about the, in a way, the sociology or the history of science, but, but our, our best logics of science are kind of parallel this and, sh and show you just how differences in, in, in basically guesstimates, you know, informed guesses about the, the, the causes, the possible causes of the blurriness in this particular telescope can lead people to interpret the evidence in really quite different ways. And in ways that often, as I say, maybe are not, are not, it's not as if someone like Eddington is, is acting in bad faith, but rather naturally he's tending to interpret the evidence in ways that, that, that vindicate his whole, his whole experiment and the theory that he loves. So, so what you see is, is something that's neither Popperian nor Kuhnian, <laughs> uh, which is exactly what these logics would lead you to expect, that neither a complete bloodless impassive objectivity. And in some sense, um, as I say, as I, as I explain in my book, that's just, it's kind of logically impossible. The, 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 the interpretation of the evidence will turn on things that are not um, turn on things that are not spelled out or, or determined objectively. Uh, but at the same time, it's not a matter of everyone just sort of lining up to support uh, 
their theory. There's a lot of kind of human variation and difference and ambition, and there are many other stories to illustrate this that 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 manage to flow into the logic of science in a way that the logic is, in a way, not only accommodates but but finds necessary in order to go forward. You need everyone needs to be opinionated in order to interpret the evidence. This is what our logical research shows us. Everyone needs to have some view about these different matters, yet they, the, there's, there's a lot of latitude about what belief you might have. And so humans will naturally have different kinds of beliefs. And so we get this great, great array of opinion, um, which is all sounding like it's um, I, perhaps I should remark, not very helpful for, for building a, this theory refuting machine that I'm claiming science, in fact, turns out to be. Uh, great. And um, I mean, I, I can't help but uh, be... When you mentioned, for example, uh, this, this, um, this attempt to kind of have a more mathematical, formal... Um, approach to deciding if a theory should be correct or not. Um, can you mention some big names of, of proponents like that? Because to me, that just sounds basically impossible in any meaningful sense. Well, the um, the the theory that that has been most influential and has been best developed is the Bayesian approach to um, to. Uh, I suppose you would say inductive reasoning to the the the. The, the question of, of what to think in the light of the evidence, um, which is named after Thomas Bayes, uh, who was uh, actually a, um, an English a religious minister who lived in the 18th century uh, in England, uh, who was not at all known for his ideas in his lifetime. In fact, I'm, I'm not were these ideas even published in his lifetime? In any case, um, uh, it would have been very surprising to him to find that his name was attached to uh, the single most influential idea about, about how, to, how to think about evidence or just more generally how to accommodate new information in your, in your beliefs about the world. So this Bayesian approach is the most is the biggest and the most influential. It's not, it's not the only one, um, but it, but, but, the others also put similar weight on the kinds of background beliefs I'm talking about. The people who developed the Bayesian idea include a number of statisticians and philosophers and so on. There isn't really a single towering figure of, of the same level of fame as Popper or Kuhn, though. Got it. But uh, okay, and now that I know roughly what's, what's your, what you were thinking when, when you mentioned that, that type of approach, you know, that I know is, uh, is a Bayesian system, that, that seems more reasonable to me, although I, I, tend to, I tend to think that more in isolation when you're, just, when you're making a single decision or when you're making, uh, analyzing a single piece of evidence. I think when you're trying to do that for a whole field, when there's different um, methodological differences between studies, that would be such a mess. I, I have no idea how people um, conceptualize that. Um, but I want to get into kind of the core of your book because it, it's really this this specific idea that you're really trying to to bring to light, and that, that I think it's absolutely brilliant. So, so what exactly makes science special, and and why why the hell did it take so long if it's that powerful? So I left things uh, kind of uh, uh, at, a, at the cliffhanger stage by saying you have all this disagreement about the evidence, and yet science's, science's power comes from its ability in the end to use small bits of evidence to topple great theories. 
Well, I certainly think that, as you can tell, that the disagreement is real. But there's a kind of agreement that underlies it, which um, is, in a way, um, not very much agreement, but uh, just enough to make science different enough from what came before and and have the kind of power that that I say that, that well that it manifestly has. This is a an agreement. In a way, it's a kind of negative agreement. It's an agreement to conduct the whole of scientific inquiry purely with respect to uh, empirical evidence, empirical argument, and the ability of theories to predict or explain or accommodate that empirical evidence. Okay. Now, maybe that just sounds like a description of what everyone already knows about science. And if so, that's good, because I think everyone, in some sense, does already know this about science. But what's it's important to, to, to notice in that formulation is the, the only part, that there are certain ways of thinking that are completely off limits uh, in not not scientists can think what they like but in scientific publication are completely off limits you can't argue for your theories uh, uh, philosophically or theologically uh, uh, or even aesthetically uh, so no matter how much some physicists may believe, um, Eddington is a good example, actually, how, that the beauty of a theory testifies in its favor. You can't uh, argue in a scientific journal article that your theory is more likely to be right because it's more beautiful. What you have to do is, if you, if you have a theory that you appeals to because of its elegance, you have to find some piece of empirical evidence that, that supports it uh, or that undermines its rivals. So everyone is, in effect, agreeing to play by a certain, a certain rule. And I call it the, the iron rule of explanation. And you can think of it because it's about, it's about um, uh, insisting that, that, that theories be evaluated in the light of the facts that they can and can't explain. The important thing about the iron rule is it functions as a kind of a, a rule for a game, a serious game, a game that has a purpose outside just just gaming, of course, namely the pursuit of scientific knowledge. But still, a rule, a kind of a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an artificial rule, this commitment to, to argue entirely in terms of evidence. And it commits everyone, uh, because it commits them to settling their arguments through, through evidence, it commits them to this process of, of digging up ever more little bits of evidence here and there to try to convince their opponents that they're right. Um, now, often, uh, as I've said, you have this great disagreement in science about who's right, about what the evidence shows, about whether this, the results of this telescope should be taken seriously or just dismissed as hopelessly flawed. But what everyone will agree to uh, is to do more experiments. So, for example, that those Eddington experiments, they were which involved taking photographs of the positions of stars near the eclipsed sun, continued to be done. So there was some disagreement or dispute about whether that uh, how to interpret Eddington's results. So the next time a good eclipse came along, they went and did it again, and then again, and then again, and then again, because the, 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 the only way to argue was to create more, uh, more data, to conduct more measurements, to perform more experiments. Eventually what happens, uh, and this happened with the, the measurements of the stars that these are supposed to detect the, the um, or they do detect the 
angle by which the amount by which light is bent by gravitational fields. So something where Einstein and Newton make different predictions. Eventually, the situation starts to become more clear. With Eddington, you had just three telescopes uh, and uh, uh, all somewhat disagreeing with one another, in fact. Um, 20, 30, 40 years later, you had many, many different telescopes pointed at different fields of stars at, at, during different eclipses. And the evidence began to line up and it became clear that on the whole, Einstein's theory was making the right predictions. And the, a telescope like the one that, that gave more Newtonian looking results was an outlier. And so scientists who are, as I say, on the, are ordinary people um, subject to subject to um, failures, but also on the whole trying to do the right thing. Look at a set of data like that, and finally they begin, can begin to agree. Maybe they may not all entirely agree, but a kind of consensus is formed. So the way consensus is formed is by, is by just going back to the uh, uh, disagreement is at first normal, and the way consensus is formed is by go, by going back to the lab, um, back to the observatory, uh, and getting more facts, more data. Uh, that's what's key to amassing enough data to begin to point decisively uh, in one direction and and away from the other theories that simply, it turns out, simply can't make sense of that data. So the role of the iron rule in all of this is to focus scientists 100% on this task of getting more data, to tell them if they're going to win the game, as it were, then, then they just need to do more experiments to make more measurements. Uh, it doesn't tell them to think in any particular way about the results of those experiments. And inevitably, I think they're going to disagree. But what it does do is tell them to do more experiments. And that's really, I think, the, the, the key to modern science is this, is this emphasis to the exclusion of everything else on, on going back and finding more little complicated facts to bring to the table. Awesome. Um, and kind of something that you do so well in, in your book that is not so easy to transmit to someone without going through a lot of the examples that you gave in the book is that it's it's hard to comprehend how much of an insane idea that is that that's that's the only rule that you're supposed to play by like especially because something that is also a bit funny about science is that science is kind of like a merge between uh, rationalism and empiricism it's like you need to pay attention to the evidence uh, but then you need to put that event to reason. So we, in modern terms, you can think of that as uh, statistics, right? And so you can't just have pure evidence because that's not that doesn't give you anything. Like you have to interpret it. Uh, but at the same time, you can't just, you know, be like thinking, thinking, think, think through in like your philosophy chair and hoping to uncover the, the secrets of, of the universe. But the, 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 but the thing is, even within that merge of empiricism and, and rationalism, there is reason there so there is some kind of um some kind of philosophizing about it so so to speak but but then the official rule is no you only look at the data and everything else is absolutely relevant and then there's also another interesting aspect which is is which, which you also mentioned a little bit and you go in depth into the book is that the scientists 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 themselves don't play by that rule in the sense of 
how they think in their personal lives, which is very bizarre, right? It's because it's like you ask a scientist, well, why do you think this theory is so uh, promising, even though the data is kind of preliminary, um, and they'll give you all kinds of reasons that might not be all empirical, uh, but then only only the empirical evidence counts. And then once that empirical evidence counts and we accept it as valid, but then what produced that evidence was the non-empirical reasons. And it's it's just it's just insane. And then you lay it down in your book so well. Yeah, thank you. you just um Gary, you just gave a great description of why I think it's there's something there's something about it that's deeply disturbing. And yet scientists are so used to it that they it just seems normal. I mean it is normal. It's the way science works. But this idea that that the the reasons that are so close to you and for believing a theory, you just accept that those are ruled out of court. <laughs> that that they don't count. <laughs> uh, that's 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 not what science is about. Uh, and you just accept that. Yeah, this the I, I like to use the example of the elegance or beauty of theories in physics because so many contemporary physicists have talked about its importance to them. So it's something that you there's no doubt that they still think it's terrifically important. Uh, that they will, on the one hand, feel that this is their this is their guide to the truth. This is the line they follow to see how the universe really works. And then when it comes to defend it, all that goes out the window. It's, uh, uh, and this whole other way of, of arguing for theories becomes the way to go is, is, um, is really quite remarkably strange. Um, you asked me um, earlier to comment on why it took so long for modern science to come along. I think it's because of this, this very strangeness. Someone like Aristotle was very much concerned to have his theories explain the facts, but he thought it was also very important for his theories to fit together in the right kind of philosophical way. No doubt he cared about the aesthetic side of that too. And so um, he simply didn't devote the same amount of time and attention and sort of almost neurotic, obsessive uh, 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 focus uh, to, to, to getting the theories exactly right with respect to the facts um, that modern science does. Uh, and so his theories, although wonderful, are simply have not turned out to be um, especially important to the development of our current thinking about the world and in your book you talk, you talk about uh, you talk about um the importance of of beauty um in physics of kind of like the difference between um you know what's what is acceptable has a scientific argument and what the scientists truly think and something that i don't think you touch on your book but also kind of goes within the same pattern is also within physics but with a more theological um, dimension because now science is kind of very much associated with this kind of like hyper materialist um, thinking that's that's kind of like within the 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 cultural wave of new atheism. But for example, in the twentieth century, like a lot of the greatest phys physicists to which the, the the entire foundation of modern physics rests on, a lot of them weren't materialists at all. Like uh, they, they were often theologically motivated, um, and they thought that. And funny enough, they thought of what we now consider science and materialism. They thought what they discovered was arguing against that, uh, and so that that's another example of you know what what's it's one thing what's 
it's a valid argument in, in science compared to what the scientists truly think. And I find it bizarre that we kind of forgot that aspect of, of history, of, of theology and science in the physics of the 20th century. Yes, no, exactly right. Eddington, for example, was a devout Quaker. Um, but what's really important, I think what you say is exactly right. What's really important about science is not some kind of big philosophical idea about the way the world works, but rather almost the exact opposite of that, this very specific methodological injunction <laughs> to, to argue in a certain way. If you follow the iron rule, if you follow that injunction to just argue with the evidence, it doesn't matter what you think about the big picture. It doesn't matter uh, whether you think the evidence is all is the only important thing or not. And as, as, as you've said, as I've said, many physicists, many scientists don't think the evidence is the only important thing, but it doesn't matter. Science, science says, yeah, it's fine for you to think that. Just don't, don't bring it into a, my journals. <laughs> and that turns out to be the key behavioral, behavioral modulator that makes scientists do the kind of thing that has made science so successful. So one of the things that annoys me about the public perception of of science is that they they think it's way simpler than it is especially to evaluate a theory and to kind of decide versus you know a is correct and, and b is incorrect and especially in, in the history of science uh, we tend to think we tend to view the history of science as a bunch of mistakes that people just were too stupid to see or something like that. And, and I really hate that because you, you don't quite capture the tensions that were um, when those discoveries are being made because we're analyzing that history with post hoc knowledge about our current scientific understanding. And every, basically 99.9% .9 of the people, if they were put back into that era, not only would they not be able to you know, made the, the, the correct claim, but it wouldn't even be possible in principle of that claim because a lot of the times that knowledge wasn't even avail available or that technology wasn't even avail available. And something that I like about uh, your book in, in, in some of the areas that's in some of the chapters that you wrote is that you, you do a really great job of, of putting us back into the historical period without the current knowledge and then analyze, okay, what do these people back then knew? What type of arguments could they have made and what type of evidence were, were they trying? And it, it, I think this is crucial, the fact that you need to be transported to that period and not rely on your current knowledge and just say, well, those people were just, were just stupid. And something that I absolutely loved and that I would like you to cover that, and maybe you can't cover it in detail because maybe you just don't remember it very well. Uh, but when you, when you kind of made the debate of the caloric fluid theory versus the kinetic theory uh, of heat in kind of like a fictional story. Like, I absolutely love that. That was one of my favorite parts. So maybe if you can, like, unpack that a little bit. Well, sure. So in, in that in that passage, I'm trying to use that that historical episode to to put put people reading the book in the in the shoes of the scientists, and they don't know which of these two ideas is right, and they're proposing experiments to one another um, to test the theories. So um, is is the 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 um, the, um, the key piece of data is that is that heat can travel through empty space from the sun to the earth, right? I mean, everyone who's, who's 
uh, Lane on the Beach knows that. And of course, the whole existence of life on Earth depends on it. So how can that be? Um, there was, there was uh, one idea about heat. This is around the time that these ideas were being thrown around um, in, the, in the early 19th century in particular. There was a lot of fruitful work on this. Um, uh, one idea is, 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 well, is, maybe I shouldn't give away the end of the story. One idea is, <laughs> is that heat is the vibration basically a disordered vibration of matter. So when something is hot, it's because all the, all the particles, the molecules are vibrating pretty fast. And the faster they vibrate, the more heat is in the substance. So if that's heat, then it's easy to understand, for example, when I put a hot, I, I put a, um, say an iron and the hot coals, how the iron gets hot because the vibrations of the hot coals set the molecules of the iron vibrating. The iron gets hot as well. But um, it's a total mystery then how heat could get to us from the sun. You know, there is the sun vibrating away, but everything in between is empty space. There's nothing to vibrate in empty space. So how could the earth get warm? So what, what happens to this idea about heat? Um, um, well, the, the great rival of, of this um, mechanical theory of heat, is, as sometimes people put it, is the, at the time was the caloric fluid theory, which I mentioned earlier. Um, heat is a kind of fluid. Now, that seems to provide a quite um, a, a good model for how heat would get from one body to another through empty space. In fact, the emptier, the better, right? So that the fluid can, as it were, in a very fine spray, uh, <laughs> saturate the whole solar system um, from, from the sun. And there, there's the earth just receiving this rain of caloric fluid droplets, and that's what's warming us all up. Um, so it looks the, the this problem of explaining how heat travels for a vacuum is, looks good for the caloric fluid theory. Um, but you can always make up make up a story, right? Um, and in, in this particular case, a story that some some of the supporters of the mechanical theory came up with was that the heat actually traveled through space in a different form. Um, in a, the form of radiation, uh, like, a, a, like a kind of light, uh, except a sort of, I mean, we know that the sun's light is clearly traveling through empty space. Maybe there's another form of radiation that comes along with the light that, that transfers the heat um, to the earth. <clears throat> uh, that's, it's a complicated story. You've got to have heat now. I have sort of now, now is normally the vibration of molecules, but can be transformed into a kind of radiation just for the purposes of getting it to the earth, where it gets transformed back into the vibration of molecules. So how do you, how do you, that's a cool story, although rather complicated. The caloric fluid story is, is a story that makes a lot of sense. Um, how do you proceed? How do you tell the difference, distinguish between these two stories. This was the, the kind of, I mean, exactly the kind of situation that say that um, the ancient scientists would find themselves in and they would argue back and forth with one another about the philosophical and other merits of the story, the kinds of things the story could explain or not explain. What really seems to mark out modern science and the way that it tackles a, 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 um, 
a situation like this is 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 the recourse to experiment. So let's not let's not argue about whether one theory is simpler than the other or more plausible than the other. Let's not worry about let's not philosophize. Let's not to f- try to fit these theories into some bigger system. Let's just come up with some experiments. Well, how could we test whether whether the heat from the whether heat uh, travels through a vacuum as a kind of as it were a fine spray or as a, as as radiation? Um, we can put up some kind of barrier. Um, we can put up an opaque barrier, maybe that uh, is opaque to light, and therefore um, might well be opaque to heat radiation, and see if the heat makes it past the barrier. Now, that's not going to be decisive, though. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe the uh, the barrier <laughs> is, um, although it's opaque to light, is transparent to heat radiation. Actually, it turns out, just kind of peeking ahead in time, that that this is a phenomenon that heat radiation can travel through some materials that light cannot travel through, like a dark plastic um, trash bag is one example. Anyway, I won't won't go on for too much longer since this is just to give people who are listening a kind of a, a sense of how the story goes. But the way the story goes is this kind of back and forth of experiments where some one, one scientist does an experiment to defend their theory. Okay. They're totally partial. There's no Popperian impartiality here. Uh, but there's a, there's, there's a, there's, there's one way you could, you could come up with a story about how that experiment is not totally decisive. And then uh, another, the other scientist comes back with another experiment. And what you get is this, is this agreement, uh, is this disagreement at every stage on what the experiments actually show. Neither scientist abandons their position in the course of this imagined dialogue, but they keep doing more experiments. They keep getting more data. And so you begin to see, first of all, that there's this crucial agreement uh, uh, to argue in a certain way by doing measurements or experiments. So there's something they agree on, which is how to go on disagreeing. And furthermore, that as long as the argument goes on, you get more and more data to to, uh, interpret um, I don't follow it all the way through to modern times in this particular story, but the more general story, as I've said, is that once this really begins to pile up, then even the fans of some particular theory will have to eventually acknowledge that their theory is not is not doing so well. <laughs> so you see in this story, you see this this agreement on procedure, on method. Even, even at the same time as total disagreement on interpretation as a kind of engine for, uh, for generating more and more of those facts that ultimately uh, form a kind of an unassailable mountain that, that I guess, um, falls on top of one theory and props another theory up. <laughs> That, that that was great, and, and I really loved that 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 part of the book. It was so beautiful, beautifully put. And something that also it illustrates two things that that, that I really like. One is how difficult it is to judge based on a sing based on a based on a narrow number of experiments of what something is true or not. And I think because pe- even though we live in such a science heavy society, uh, unfortunately almost no one actually interacts with the real science of like actually seeing the progress of something or reading a paper or or knowing the true disagreements in terms of you know what's the actual data behind each each stance and so people don't have the sense of how difficult it is sometimes for for these things to progress and this story you you put it quite nicely and another thing that I also like is because it shows 
such a fascinating aspect of science because even though science is seen as this really rational um, objective thing uh, in practice it relies a lot on creativity which is not rational enough in, in, at all by most accounts because it takes creativity to come up with a with a theory with with a sorry with a with an experiment that that proves a theory like and it's really hard to do because it's it's literally thinking outside the box it's 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 a perfect example of 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 that expression and in science you see this so often and and these two aspects that I'm that I'm saying of of one how difficult it is to to decide and the creativity they play along together because one scientist comes up with a really creative experiments that he hopes will finally set the stage and another one is like hmm okay but what about this what if there's some other explanation and he comes with some weird ass creative theory and it, there's it's just this beautiful dance that that i think is is very unappreciated um in in today's science or, or today's view of science say um, so something you covered in the book as well is this. Um, I mean, you, you kind of—I I guess you took that from 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 Kuhn. I think I remember reading from him as well, which is science kind of has this game where you kind of—I don't know quite how to explain it. Maybe you can explain it better than I than I can. Which is kind of it almost tricks you into into. <laughs> To almost exploiting your your labor your label labor for the greater good of science, even though that that particular action that you're doing is close to irrelevant and insanely tedious. And when I read that on Kuhn's book, I I kind of I kind of understood it intellectually, but like it didn't hit very deep deeply to me. Uh, but you know, fast forward a few few years later, now I'm doing um, a master's in neuroscience, and to me that just became so clear because it's like you have this you know massive hypothesis on, on the top, and then you kind of have like sub um, categories of how things work, and then below that maybe you have some experiments that validate the thing, and to do an experiment to validate the subcategory. It's an insaneous, tedious process. It's like you want to analyze a specific piece of tissue. Okay, here's a protocol of 30 steps that you need to do, and that's for one sample. And now you need to do that for 50 samples, and then you need to spend, you know, 10 hours doing statistical analysis or something like that. And to me, that's just that's just insane. And, and, and but it works. It's it's insane, and it's even more <laughs> insane that it actually works because the scientists actually do it. And to me, it almost feels like a trick somehow. Yeah, we didn't. I guess we. That's one thing I didn't. I didn't really get into before that I, I, I should have is that is the difficulty of carrying out these experiments. You know, often it's years and years of work to set up an experimental apparatus so that it actually works. And what, what you're doing, of course, is the fruit of, of, of a lot of people's work kind of figuring out these protocols and so on. And even that's laborious and, uh, and, and as, as you say, often, often tedious, but, but many experiments, I mean, that, that, that Eddington experiment I mentioned, one of the things I love about it as an example is they sailed off to the bits of the world where they would be able, where the sun would be completely eclipsed and they had to take photographs of the stars around the sun at that, the moment of totality. Um, it could easily have been that the weather was just terrible in all the places they were. In fact, they did run into some problems with clouds and the whole thing was a failure. They would have come back with no, no, 
data at all from a, a, a good six months long expedition to the tropics. So there's so much, there's, there's tediousness, there's, there's uncertainty um, uh, to, there's, there's just the expense and effort in scientific experimentation. I think this is why it's so important to have, to have, this is, this is why it wouldn't work for the iron rule to say, Evidence is really important. You're allowed to do some other stuff as well, though. Um, just make sure you also get the evidence. You know, that's in a way that's not so different from what Aristotle was operating with. And then everyone would say, "Well, okay, um, we'll get some evidence." Wow, it's so difficult, though. Um, let's. <laughs> That's a, that's a really um, good point. I never thought about that before. Let's go back and argue a bit more about the aesthetic merits of our theories. But instead, you just have no choice. Eddington was a, a theoretical physicist, basically. Um, you know, he, he was one of the very first to appreciate the complex mathematics of Einstein's theory. And yet here he was thinking, I guess I'm just going to have to sail off to Principe, this island off the coast of Africa, uh, to to if I'm going to get anywhere with this theory to actually get some facts together, there's just one choice. And that's what, as you say, that's what maybe tricks. Well, that's what, that's what sets things up so beautifully <laughs> sets up the, 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 contours of scientific inquiry so beautifully so that every scientist, no matter what their views about which theories are right or wrong or which uh, protocols are promising or not, all of them are going to end up being or at least aiding in the operation of running this kind of fact-generating machine. Mm -hmm. Well, what, what I meant by trick is more of this, um, this, this thing that the system kind of depends on this very micro actions of the scientists but then there's kind of like a an imbalance of the payoff because those actions are very often irrelevant you know it's like the whole system depends on the scientists but the science gets almost nothing out of it because because it's not like you especially nowadays it's not like you do an experiment and you're going to revolutionize fields it's just one tiny tiny micro puzzle of of the whole thing and that, that, that's that's kind of what i meant so um, something that I've been thinking about a lot this past few years, and, and, and you're a good person to kind of help me clarify this a bit, is how to think about the ontological status of what science says it's true. Because on one hand, you, you kind of think about science as, as discovering what is true. But then because of the way science operates in practice, it's more like if you can predict something and if you can make a model out of something, right? But those aren't quite the same because you can predict something and the kind of the, the theory behind it, your assumptions, they can be wrong. And you can have a model that works fine. Like for example, before, you know, the, the before modern cosmology, you had we had proto models that that seemed to work in the sense that you can make some predictions out of it, uh, but they were wrong. Like, they were fundamentally wrong. Uh, th that's something that I don't like about, for example, Neil deGrasse Tyson and, and some other people, when they kind of try to... I've seen them sometimes dismiss kind of like a Kuhnian criticism of science, and the way they think about it is, oh, no, no, but those previous paradigms weren't wrong. They were kind of proto-paradigms. That's kind of their claim. And that's a bullshit claim as far as I'm concerned because they were they had a, a theory at the core of how 
the world works, like the actual laws, and those were wrong. So you can't just say it was a, you know, it's it's not a step up. Kuhn, in my opinion, was right that it's a qualitative uh, jump um, that you make. But so, uh, how are we supposed to think about what science is? Is are they actually dis- are we actually discovering true reality, or do we ke- or is, is or is that the case that we can't just make that type of claim? That's just not a claim that science makes, and we just have to go about uh, predicting how the, how things are going to be. Well, it's certainly true that at various times. Science scientists have thought that they kind of figured out how everything worked and then it turned out that they were wrong. So it, at the very least, we should be cautious about what the picture of the world that science is revealing to us. But at the same time, uh, it seems that there are certain things that surely uh, we're, uh, we've pretty much established for sure. So the fact that... Um, Various diseases are caused by these little microorganisms, bacteria, viruses, and so on. Um, that seems um, like it's pretty much now set in stone. I wouldn't. It seems extreme to be skeptical about whether whether viruses really exist. Uh, for a while, it was it was quite reasonable, but now it seems not so reasonable. And likewise, um, say the idea, also a remarkable idea, that the that the surface of the earth is composed of these plates of rock that actually move around and the continents have changed their, their arrangement over time is a pretty astounding idea, but I can't, I can't see that one um, turning out to be wrong. On the other hand, we're definitely still kind of um, feeling our way around at the very bottom level, or at least what seems to be the very bottom level um, physically, you know, there's a lot of arguments, for example, about how to how to uh, make uh, quantum mechanics uh, compatible, consistent with Einstein's ideas about gravity. Uh, it's clear that they don't fit together neatly. Something's got to change. We don't know which is going to change and exactly how it's going to change. Different people have their suspicions, but there's a case where I think it's obvious we haven't gotten the final picture yet, or at least if we have got some parts of the final picture, we don't know which of the parts of our current picture uh, are are going to be in the final picture. So for me, it's really a continuum. Uh, At the one end, there are things that are very clearly still still up in the air. And then there are things that where it looks like, it, it looks like, you know, electrons really are these little particles or sort of quantum mechanical uh, effervescences. And it's hard to see how that could all turn out to be wrong. But at the same time, we couldn't say that everything is all that the all of the details have been taken care of uh, uh, in, in every way. There's still room for surprises. And then, then there are other parts of science where the, the, the basic causal structure is, is pretty much beyond question, although a lot of uh, certainly much about exactly how it works is still open to debate. Um, you know, when, one example of, of this, a very different kind of example is uh, uh, medical science where we know a lot about the bits of the body and how they fit together but um not nearly so but but we still can't really explain um say obesity why that there should be so much more obesity now than there was there was 20 or 30 years ago in industrial um 
in the industrial world. It's just still a bit of a mystery. Uh, so, so there are many, many, many question marks. I either see science as, as if, especially if you think of all of science, and not just the frontiers of fundamental physics, as as slowly, and maybe not surely, but in fits and starts, building up a picture of the world, the bits of the world, and how they fit together, that we can we can uh, take a fairly realistic attitude towards. But for example, when you mentioned. Uh, quantum mechanics, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because my, my knowledge about this is very rudimentary, just from from reading stuff here and there. But the impression that I have is, for example, when when you talk about um, there's kind of like a science, a scientific question of how to integrate quantum mechanics with Einstein's physics. But then there's another question, which is kind of what I what I was more interested in, and kind of what I was trying to get behind uh, my question is. What is actually like? Even if we manage to kind of figure out uh, why that incomp incompatibility exists between Einstein physics and and quantum mechanics, then th there's also the question about what exactly is quantum mechanics in in of itself as a, as a phenomenon, because it seems very nonsensical, basically. And that question, as as far as I'm aware, it's not a question that scientists are very much interested in. That seems more of a question that the philosophers of quantum mechanics are more into. And as far as I know, and I'm getting this from uh, C.N. Carroll, I believe his name is, like that's an insanely small group of people in the planet. It's it's like a few dozen people compared to, I don't know, tens of thousands of, of physicists. And from my understanding, kind of the, the official position of quantum mechanics is that there's all this phenomena here. And we have a rough theory of how this works, and we can make predictions out of it, but we don't care of what it means. That's not a question we care about. Um, and so th that's kind of what confuses me, that if you say that you don't care about what that actually is, as long as it works, like the, the, the mathematics works, so okay, th that's good enough for technology, but when you think about kind of the original purpose of science in the sense that it's connected to philosophy it seems a very weird thing that you just don't care about you know the, what something actually is what reality is yeah uh true <laughs> so for a long time quantum mechanics the official doctrine with quantum mechanics was not to not to worry too much uh, i think i think a part of that is coming out of uh of the iron rule itself uh, in that it's saying, don't philosophize about quantum mechanics. But what, what you're referring to is a gradually emerging sense that it's not just philosophical questions that have been left unanswered by the formulations of quantum mechanics that we have now. There are some real physical questions uh, of the sort that science itself should be addressing that have not been settled by quantum mechanics. And so it's not just a matter of, of, of avoiding philosophy. Some more, more scientists have become interested in these questions, I think, recently. So say Steven Weinberg, um, who just died uh, in the last 10 or 20 years, started to talk more and more about the 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 strangeness at the heart of quantum mechanics and the incompleteness at the heart of quantum mechanics. So we may, it may yet 
turn out to be the case that that it comes back as a respectable scientific question once once the the uh, the f- more speculative philosophical aspects of the question have been pushed off to the margins as you know as the iron rule says they should be um, but it's still very much as you say up in the air and uh, no one really has much of an idea what the truth is with regard to these very fundamental questions about how quantum mechanics ultimately works. Yeah, it's, 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 it's very odd. And, but then let's, let's leave that aside because that's, that's something that's uh, one is very hard to talk about and also um, can, can take a very long time. Um, I think that's a topic for a whole other podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I don't want to take too, too much of your time. We've been at it uh, for a while. So I'd like to finish about uh, what do you think are the, the biggest challenge uh, to science right now? And you can take either a philosophical bent to it or a more pragmatic, socio-political uh, approach to it. Yeah, I guess I would say that this isn't exactly a challenge to science as such. I think science as such is a is a is here to stay as an institution. There are various, it, it has its, its problems, um, um, but I don't see it as, as kind of falling apart because of those problems. Um, when I say problems, I mean things like the current debate about, um, say, null hypothesis testing and p-values and so on, and the idea that, that perhaps a lot of research that's being published in scientific journals is, is not actually... Uh, really very good. Uh, but putting that aside, I think a much bigger challenge for science and certainly one that's more important for the world as a whole is finding ways to talk to the rest of the world that um, that allow, on the one hand, allow for for all of the enormous content of scientific knowledge to be to to filter through into the rest of the world and to be put to use to to stave off disaster and to make the world a better place without without capitulating to a too simplistic of a view of science as just a a, a kind of a, a a a machine that just sort of issues yes or no questions uh, answers on every question uh, uh, that is science needs to find a way to to acknowledge the fact that scientific knowledge is not a body of propositions or theories that all scientists agree with, uh, uh, that there's still a lot of disagreement. You know, things, I mean, we've seen many good examples of this with the pandemic um, questions where scientists were just at a certain point undecided, but it wasn't the case that they didn't know anything. <laughs> uh, we have to find ways to communicate that knowledge uh, in its in the complicated state that it actually arises in uh, in a useful way to the rest of society um, you know one way one way to do this is the way it's been done with uh, climate change science the UN simply has convenes this this body um, uh, the INPC which interprets the science for everyone else for policymakers and so on but you can't really expect to do that for every every kind of science. You can't, for example, it's not, you can't 
Um, it's not nearly so easy to do that when the consumers are not people at the highest levels of decision-making who have weeks and weeks to ingest the, to read the reports um, from, from the IPCC. Uh, but just ordinary people. Somehow you have to find a way to give ordinary people, for example, dietary advice that reflects the fact that, or for that matter, advice about how to, how to protect themselves during the current pandemic that reflects the fact that things are not settled. There's still a amount of uncertainty without making it sound like everything is, is completely that scientists simply are unsure about everything. And that you may as well just go to some, your favorite internet website for advice instead. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. And that's, that's a, that's a really big problem. And like you said, this, this has been really highlighted during the pandemic and and it's such a hard problem to solve because, for, for example, I think the perception of science of the public, I think, is actually diminished or, or hurt by a lot of times by the actual authorities of, of scientific institutions or scientific organizations or uh, bodies from the government. Because, for example, in this pandemic, I see that a lot that they issue statements about, you know, for example, how to protect yourself from the pandemic. But if you read those statements, and I hate this so much, they they make it look like it's almost an authority statement. It's like, do masks protect yourself against infection or, or by how much? And what you always see with those type of statements is, is a yes or no answer. And to me, that's like, that's a bullshit answer. To me, just you saying yes or no is basically worthless. That's almost worthless as anyone else saying it because you're just saying it based on authority. Now, the the crucial thing is that they're not just saying purely on authority because you know he said you know because the the government says A and the online blogger says B and one says you know one says yes the other says no but one has evidence behind it. But then they don't say that evidence. It's like the the answer the what they should be doing is not that do masks help you uh, protect against COVID or not? It's like, here's what the evidence says. And like, here's the studies that have been made. And this has been the conclusions. And walk you through the process. They also do this a lot with myths. For example, does alcohol kill COVID, for example? And they say, yes, but don't use it. Something like, like I've seen those types of answers. That's just such a stupid answer. Because people reading it is like, Okay, but why? They they need to understand, right? But then at, at but then the problem with that is that if you if you don't want to rely on on authority and you want to kind of give the sense that there's a, a solid reasoning behind your recommendation, then that requires nuance. And how do you do that with with this information agent? You know, this. So if if I'm trying to explain to I don't know a family member, my aunt for example, about what she should do. It's like I'm going to print the papers and walk her through the methodology and the statistics. Yeah, like, right. It's just not doable. So there's, yeah. there's this tension, which is if you don't give the evidence, then then people kind of lose faith in it. It's just like, oh, authority. You know, there's these scientists, you know, they just go into the status quo and they're, or they're bought out or something like that. But then if you want to give nuance, then no one listens because, <laughs> because it's just too complicated. And, and I don't know how to solve that problem. I think it's a huge challenge. So this really is a, it's not, I, I don't have the answer to it and I don't think anyone has the answer to it, but it's really important to get it right. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, 
and it's such a big problem as well because it's not it's not like a philosophical problem it's like it's a very pragmatic one it's a problem that people are literally dying right now because of it mm -hmm. um but oh well let's let's see if as a society uh we can figure something out i hope so so that's it we've, we've walked through a lot about science and this was a, a fantastic Uh, conversation and that, and I really appreciate um, you coming here. I'm sure you're very busy, and and just thank you so much. Thank you for coming here and thank you for writing the book, which was absolutely excellent. And I recommend everyone picking it up. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me on the show. Um, that was a really fun conversation. Awesome. So have a nice day, Michael, and thank you so much once you again. Too. Bye bye. You too. All right. Bye. <laughs>